Hey, we welcome you if you're new to us today, and if you're old to us. <laughs> it's all good. It's good to be here today. We have been, uh, and my name's Pastor Phil, by the way, for those of you that don't know me. I'm the pastor at this church. But uh, we have been kind of weaving our way through the book of Acts over uh, probably about a little bit over a year now, I, I would imagine. Our series has been entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. The elders and I kind of agreed a year ago that that would be a good book to teach through as a new church, as a church plant, just that we would look at, you know, the beginning of the church and, and this, the Holy Spirit's movement there and how it kind of all came together and began and all of that. And it's just been really, really good for us as a church, for us as a new church, for us as a new body of believers united for the cause of the gospel. So we've really loved it. Uh, back on March 10th, uh, we covered the first half of verse 3 of chapter 10. Okay, we covered the first half of verse 3 of chapter 10. No, I haven't broken down verses by halves and all that and taught through it that slowly, but I have taught through it sort of methodically and slowly, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, or whatever the subject matter is. But uh, several weeks ago, we did kind of pause there, and then I was sick because I got that dreadful cold. Did everyone get that nasty cold with the cough that doesn't go away and the snot and all that horrible thing? So I had to deal with that, so I, I couldn't preach on that the week after March 10th. But um, during that particular sermon, now here's the thing for you. Uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but we do post all of our sermons and uh, even the sermon scripts on our website. So if you ever miss or anything like that, you can go back and listen. And it's good to go back and listen if you're new to the whole series because really it's, it's just kind of one basic theme of the work of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus is calling us to do as a church. So it's good to go back and listen, but we put that stuff up for you guys. Now, just to go back to the 10th, we learned about how a Roman centurion named Cornelius uh, received an angelic vision from God during uh, what we call the ninth hour. Uh, rather than just kind of plowing forward and, and, and expounding on all the details of Cornelius' vision that particular morning, we kind of paused and talked about the ninth hour and how it was a significant hour because it is the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the sin debt for sinners. And so we kind of expounded on that subject and, and flushed that out. And it was really an amazing thing to learn about that significant hour and all that Jesus accomplished during it. And then just to parallel that with Cornelius getting his vision at that same time. It's a really neat uh, connection there. The ninth hour really is... The greatest hour because it is the hour that our Lord paid our sin debt through the shedding of his blood through his death. Now, if you weren't here again, go back and listen to that. You'll be blessed. Now, this morning, I'd like to camp out on the second half of verse 3 of chapter 10. Now, my plan, Lord willing, I always say that because God's plans aren't always my plans. And I make all kinds of plans and, and look out and figure out what to teach on to cover. And then God just throws a wrench into that. But my plan, Lord willing is to use this second half of this verse as a springboard to expound on the subjects of visions, tongues, and miracles. Uh, we will look at both the Old Testament over the course of several weeks. We will look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament to see what they have to say about them. And we will also work to establish some biblical patterns which will help to shed light on the subject 
matter. So I'm pretty excited about that. It, it's, you know, these are interesting things, these miraculous things to focus on, to study, and to learn about. And I think above all as a church, we want to be biblical in all that we do and say. We want to honor the Lord, and the way to do that is to know what His Word says and to live out and to obey what His Word says. And so we're going to, I'm going to make, I suppose, as a human being, a feeble attempt to expound on these scriptures, and hopefully God will attend it and pour through it and work through it, and He will teach us many, many, many things through this whole study. So we'll be looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and so we're kind of doing like a mini-series inside of our series. And I've entitled this mini-series inside of the Acts study, Testing the Spirits. Testing the Spirits is what it's called. Now, let me begin by reading our text again, uh, which will kind of serve as a, as a launch pad into our subject. And then what I'll do is I'll pray one more time, and then we'll begin to kind of dive into the subject matter. You guys ready to go? You got note sheets, you got something to write with, you're rocking and rolling, you got the most important thing in front of you, and that's your Bible. One thing you're going to notice is that there aren't going to be a lot of slides and stuff up here showing you all these things and dazzling you with colors. And wow, Pastor Phil's very creative. Uh, uh, as MacArthur would say, I don't want you to look at me and to see me. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to hear the voice of God through this sermon. And so I don't want to dazzle you with a bunch of stuff. Just listen. And it's okay if you even want to close your eyes. Just don't start snoring. You good? All right, what are we looking at? We're looking at... 10, I'll just read all of 10.3 again. 10.3, where is it? I always bring this Bible that has the smallest text. And at 43 years old, my eyes are almost gone. I mean, anyone else experiencing that? I got these things on. I'm moving to Coke bottles soon. All right. Acts 10, verse 3, where is it? There it is. And it says, about the ninth hour of the day. Now, that's where we camped out last time. About the ninth hour of the day, he, that's Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Okay, that's where we're going to stop. That's our launch pad. We see the vision there. We're reading about it. We're hearing about it. That's where we'll pause. Let me pray. Father, it is so vital and important that your church be built and based upon your holy word. Especially in these days, Lord, and I would say in any day, in any generation, but especially in these days where relativism reigns supreme, Lord, where truth is sought out and uh, supposed to be found in, in multiple different things and other religions and in voices and, in, and through just all of these different means, Lord. Well, all along, Lord, you have prescribed to us the greatest uh, expression of your love, the greatest um, voice that we will hear from you ever, and that would be through your word, God. I can't wrap my mind around how we must seek out all these other means to hear from you, to experience you, and to know you when you have given us such just a clear representation of who you are in your word. God, I mean not this morning to offend people by saying some of the things that are going to be said and by pointing out some of the errors that exist in our culture in the church today. But we need to know the truth, Lord, about these things. To not know the truth is to live in ignorance. And ignorant people who do not know the truth cannot glorify you, cannot do the work that they are to do properly. 
And so, Lord, attend this sermon, attend this message. Lord, attend your word here, God. May we have open minds and hearts to what you'll say this morning. Uh, there will be many of us, including me, that have our own notions and things and beliefs on the way things should be, God. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you in this very moment, Lord. May not our preconceived notions, our own theology, whatever it is, block us from hearing what you would say. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now, don't get me wrong here. As we move through this series, we really will expound on these texts and not just the subject matter. So we're going to kind of give it a full treatment. Um, but verse 3, you know, the second half of verse 3 when I got to it, and, and honestly, I wrote this sermon like four weeks ago. Like I said, I got sick, I couldn't come in, and then we had Easter and, and all of that stuff going on. And so I had to kind of rework my way through it last night. And as I was reading it, I thought, who wrote this? Did I write this? Why would I have said that? Isn't it weird just how the Holy Spirit moves and, and you learn new things day by day? I hope that's your progression. That's how it should be. You shouldn't just, I got this truth and I'm done, you know. And so I went back through this thing last night and I was like, who's the idiot that wrote this? And it was me. First I thought he was brilliant. Then I really started reading it. And it was like, oh my gosh, i got to change some of this stuff. But anyway, so it's been a little while since I've worked on this. But I was reminded when I got to the second half of verse 3, you know, when I saw the vision there and, and I just started to contemplate that and think about that, it really sparked me to, to, to contemplate and to think about the condition of today's church and many of the practices and things that are taking place in the church today. You know, visions along with tongues and miracles have become so common today that you can't help, as a believer, but to become a little bit skeptical. I mean, just, the, the, just, just stuff is just crazy. It's just going on and going on in all these different church circles. And, you know, as an evangelical and more kind of a, a reformed kind of guy that I am, you, know, you just kind of look out at it and you say, really? And, and you can't help but be skeptical, especially if you turn on, like, TBN and you watch these guys, you know, Kenneth Copeland and all these guys and Benny Hinn swinging his jacket, knocking people over, healing them left and right. You just, you look out and, and, and you say to yourself, really, is that really what it's all about? Is that really how these things play out? Is that really what's going on? Is that really what you intended, God? You can't help but be a little skeptical. And there's probably some in this audience today that aren't skeptical at all. You say, glory to God, and that's just what he does. And, and let him throw down. Let Benny Hinn heal a guy. I don't know. But you can't help but be a little skeptical. And for somebody like me, you become alarmed. You become concerned. People today claim to receive all sorts of visions from God. Common people, average people, whoever it is. I got a vision from God. I've had people come to me and say, I got a vision of God about you. And immediately I'm like, oh man, am I having a heart attack? What am I doing in the vision, you know? Well, it just God just wants you to persevere and keep going. Well, his word says that, so I don't know. Maybe you did get a vision. I don't know. But aren't people, have you heard of people boasting about these things? I get visions. I got a vision from God. I see these things. I hear these things all the time. I know one pastor recently said that God gives him visions at these strategic moments, like when he's in a counseling session with a husband and wife, and God gives him a vision of like one of them like in the act of committing adultery. 
Is that the kind of vision that God would give someone, some pornographic, adulterous image during that kind of thing? And then he says, you know, well, I call the woman on it, or I call the man on it right there because I got this vision and I could see it, and, and you know, blah, 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 and it happens, and, and wow, all glory to God because he got this vision. All. Is that the kind of vision that God gives someone, something like that, unholy? I don't know. I, I have a hard time with that. How, how can I not be skeptical when it comes to that? It's interesting stuff, to be, to say the least, but some people get visions of those kinds of things and other things. The use of tongues has increased dramatically in the church today. You know, pastors divvy out the gift of tongues like meds are divvied out to healthcare patients at a pharmacy. All you got to do is go through this ritual of baptism in the Holy Spirit and you will receive the gift of tongues and then you'll be able to schlepped on a Honda or whatever, the, you know, shabalaba ding dong, whatever it is. It's a serious thing. And pastors, you know, they've kind of come up with this ritual and you just do this thing and next thing you know, people are speaking in tongues. I recently heard, I guess it was a couple of years ago, I was watching a, a DVD on a particular guy and he literally said in the middle of his teaching, he said that if you as a Christian have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit and do not speak in tongues, you are not experiencing the whole fulfilled Christian life. So immediately I looked at the video and went, who's going to perform it for me right now? You know? Really? I, I, I don't have what you have. You have obtained something that I haven't obtained. And what you're saying is, is that if I subject myself to this ritual performed by this guy this ritual master, and then I can receive this gift and I can speak in tongues, and now I can enjoy the abundant, satisfying, fulfilled Christian life that Jesus promised. You know, when I see that stuff, when I hear those things, I can't help but say, really? You're telling Christians these things? You're telling me that God gave you a vision of that imagery? Wow. And, and it's, it's happening by the millions. I mean, it's just, it's not, that, that's a, two examples. I mean, this stuff is going on and on and on and miracles and all these things. Think about miracles for a moment here. One of the things that makes a miracle a miracle is that miracles don't happen very often. I mean, by definition, a miracle in and of itself is something that happens very rarely. And yet churches can plan and orchestrate miracle services where they perform them at will. Really? We can do that. I guess we can do that here, right? Miracle Tuesday. Seriously. I mean, again, I can't help but become a little skeptical. Really, we can just wield miracles like that healing power. Really, we can just speak in tongues if we go through this ritual. Really, we can just receive these visions and all of these things. It's very interesting to me, and it's very alarming. Miracles have become common in the church today, so much to the point that people plan services where the attenders are almost certainly guaranteed to experience a miracle. And usually the requisite for that is faith. If you come and you receive a miracle, it's because you had enough faith to get it. If you don't have the faith to get it, you'll just see others who have more faith than you receive these things, but you're not going to get it. What is that? Apparently, I don't have enough faith. Now, 
years ago, John MacArthur, who I do respect, you know, he's not like, I don't like bow to him and kiss his ring or anything, you know, he's a, I think he's a man of God, he's a great biblical expounder, expositor, I don't agree with everything the man says, but years ago he addressed this whole phenomenon in a book entitled Charismatic Chaos. He debunks these practices, these visions and tongues and miracles and things, and the men that promote them through careful scriptural analysis. It's a really good book. It's an interesting book. You may not agree with everything that he writes, but it's a pretty good read. It's worth buying. It's worth reading. Now, where do I land on the issue of visions, tongues, and miracles? As a pastor, as the pastor of this church, this is going to be so telling right now because I don't usually talk about these things. But I lean more towards the cessationist position. And cessationism is the view that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, prophetic utterances, and faith healing, ceased being practiced early in church history. Sensationists or cessationists generally believe that the miraculous gifts were provided only for the foundation of the Christian church during the time between the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and the fulfillment of God's purposes in history, usually identified as either the completion of the last book of the New Testament or the death of John, who was the last of the 12 apostles. Now, I'm fairly comfortable with that position and view. And the rampant misuse of those things in the church today certainly helps to stoke the flames of my skepticism. But I'm a little hesitant, to be honest with you, just to lock myself away in that cessationist position. I'm a little hesitant just to say, that's who I am, that's who I'm going to be, because now I'm going to have to reject everything else out there. Wherever a, a vision is, wherever there's a tongue, wherever there's a miracle and all that, I'm going to have to, if I take that position, lock myself away, I'm going to have to reject all of those things. And to be honest with you, I'm not comfortable with doing that. And so I ask myself, Pastor Phil, I don't say that to myself, that was weird, like third party. I say, Phil, Pastor Phil, what do you think? Oh, I say, Phil, why are you a cessationist? Are you a cessationist, a biblical cessationist? Because you've studied the scripture carefully and you've looked and you've exhausted the subject matter as best you can and now you have built that position and that is a fortified position based upon the truth alone or have you taken up that position out of response to the rampant misuse of those things in communities? Am I a reactionary cessationist or am I because I'm reacting to what I'm seeing and hearing and all what I determine and think to be falsity or am I one because the Bible has clearly stated that those things have ceased to continue on? It's a great question to ask yourself. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I take this position? Why do I reject these things that I see? Why do I stand upon these things that I see? It's always good to analyze and to evaluate your faith and what you believe. So often when I do that, I find that I don't line up. My beliefs don't line up with Scripture as I thought they did. And sometimes they do. And, and, and God gives me joy and he strengthens my faith through that analysis and those things. So am I a cessationist because the Bible says you should be one? Or am I one just out of pure an adulterated reaction to what I see. And I would say probably a little bit of both. I see things in scripture that seem to point in one direction and I see things in the community and church culture that say, man, this can't be true because of how often and frequent it is. So I think I'm a little mix of 
both. And I will say that I don't think that that's a good thing. I don't think that that is a good thing. Why? Because as a Christian man and pastor, my position should always be based upon my highest authority, which is the word of God, rather than upon what men say and do. Did you hear me? That's not just my responsibility. That's, if you're a Christian, that's your responsibility as well. That we should base our views and our beliefs upon our highest authority. Let me tell you right now, one of the biggest things that's attacked in the church today by the world and by the church itself, by many so-called Christians in the church, is the authority of Scripture. But that's the thing that's undermined everywhere, because when you undermine that, you allow all kinds of errors and things in and practices. And we see those things taking place today. But I can tell you this, as a Christian man and pastor, my highest authority is the Word of God. And I must believe what it teaches. And if the subject of my focus is not plainly clear in Scripture, then I need to be careful not to simply embrace whatever sounds right or whatever makes me feel good. No, no. Instead, I should devote myself to studying the works, the writings of trustworthy Orthodox theologians, and to examining church history. There are other ways to determine what Scripture actually says when it's not apparently clear on things. Look at orthodoxy. Look at church history. Look at where we've been. Nobody today wants to look at where the church has been and what it's done. Why? Because it's the Spirit now and He's doing different things and since Pentecost or whatever, and of course that would cover church history, but you know, it's, it's, it's about what's going on now today and God is functioning and operating differently and and, 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 you know, when, and we're, we're, we're shedding off the shackles of yesterday and, and church history isn't important and orthodoxy doesn't matter. And, yeah, it does. I should devote myself to studying and reading, and I have. Recognized, orthodox, those who agree with Scripture to the best of their ability and with one another on these subjects. Look at church history. I must also be careful not to quickly embrace listen here i must also we must also be careful not to quickly embrace whatever is popular in the church whatever is attractional in the church whatever brings masses of people to churches blah 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 if something is popular that doesn't necessarily mean that it's of the lord that it's scriptural, that it's biblical. Popularity doesn't justify anything. In fact, the scriptures clearly say that the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so you got all this activity and excitement and everything that's happening. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't fire some of that up. We've seen revivals throughout church history, but... We've got to be cautious, not just to say, look, that's what that church does over there, and there's lots of people over there, and all kinds of stuff is happening, and why the miracles and things are going on over there. Let's adopt some of that so we can have that kind of same effect on culture. And we need to look to the Word. We need to look to the Word. Popularity doesn't ensure that a thing or practice is biblically sound, especially in our day, does it? So the goal of this little mini-series is to gain, as much as possible, a biblical understanding of these things. We want to be biblical. 
We want to believe, live, and promote what the Bible teaches because we want to glorify God. That is the true heart of the believer. So the true heart of the believer says, let's test things. Let's look. Let's look at the Word. Let's test what we believe. Let's compare our theology and our beliefs to what the Bible teaches. We should never, ever, ever, ever determine the truth based upon our theology alone, but upon the Word of God. And so often we do it in the opposite, in the reverse now, I think that this is ultimately an incredibly important subject that we're dealing with here. Okay, we want to believe, live, and promote what the Bible teaches because we want to glorify God. Now, what happens running crazy, running crazy with theologically loose ideas and practices does not honor and glorify the Lord because that creates confusion disunity and divisions in his church which is his witness to the world so there is a lot at stake here isn't there we must know what the bible teaches on the subject and then live those things out forget about your traditions in your history and and where you grew up at as a church and what they do at this point let's think upon what the living word of god teaches on these subjects we cannot simply cannot afford to be ignorant of the truth. Now, I'm going to come at the subject from many different angles. Okay, I'm going to tap, a, a tap, I'm going to tap this right now. We're going to attack our subject matter from many different angles. And my goal here is not to lay siege and to destroy, you know, visions, tongues, and miracles. That's not the goal. The goal is to gain a biblical perspective on these things. That way that if they are true, that we may honor God with the rightful way to do them and to achieve his purposes through them. If they are not uh, supposed to be taking place today, then we can move on to other things, for crying out loud. We can focus on the gospel. How often is it that the gospel gets lost in all of that stuff when that is the driving purpose of the church and the driving message of the church? Not holding you know, this kind of service so all these people can get out of wheelchairs and all that. It's a beautiful thing if that's true. But the purpose and mission of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can heal a thousand lepers if they never come under the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They have better skin. But they have not the Lord what they need the most. Amen? So I'm going to be coming at this subject from many different angles. First angle, history. First angle, history. Great question to ask. Have visions, tongues, and miracles always been present in the church throughout its rich 2,000-year history? Now, this question is highly debatable. There are cessationists that say, no, all of that stuff ended after John the Apostle died, after the book of Revelation was written. And there is a long history of cessationist men and women who say, no, those things ceased then. They were for those early periods and and early seasons of God building up the church and, you know, and to, to, to supplement the apostles' teaching with miracles and all of that stuff. It was all foundational to that. So there's a long history of rejection of those things in the church. Big time. Cessationists say no. Cessationists say no, but there are evangelists who have come throughout the years, like John Wesley and who I do respect to some degree. I don't agree completely with his theology. It's okay if you do. We're not enemies. He was a, I believe he was a man of God, you know, and 
God used him in a mighty way. We had differences of theology. But, you know, John Wesley was one who, he believed in those things and promoted their use to some degree. And there was another guy who I really don't respect, and that was Charles Finney, who really put those things out there. And there's a long line of men similar to these guys who have come throughout the ages and centuries that promoted sort of these things and all of that, kind of based ministry on those things. Now, during the early part of the 20th century, a resurgence of visions, tongues, and miracles allegedly began. So what I'm saying is, is that at, at, you know, like about 1906, 1908 was, 1908 was a real turning point in the history of these things in the church. Back during the days of John Wesley and Finney and all these other guys and then all these reformers and stuff throughout the ages, uh, tongues were nearly never seen or heard of. Miracles were periodic. Visions were periodic. And so these things weren't like, I mean, if you look at the history again, there's evidence of some of these things there, but it's very minimal. It's not like for 2,000 years these things reigned supreme. They're nothing like what we see today. But in 1906, there was a resurgent, resurgence of visions, tongues, and miracles. Allegedly that began. A man named William J. Seymour began to lead a three-year revival on Azusa Street, popular street, in Los Angeles. During the revival, Seymour saw visions, performed miracles, and baptized people in the spirit where they received the gift of tongues. And there were a lot of critics around them that really did not believe what was happening and thought it was lunacy and craziness. Orthodox, just good old-fashioned Protestants and and media sources like local newspapers actually spoke out against this strange new phenomenon. The LA Times reported this. Meetings are held in a tumble-down shack on Azusa Street, and the devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites, preach the wildest theories, and work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their peculiar zeal. Uh, colored people and a sprinkling of whites compose the congregation and night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. They claim to have, have the gift of tongues and be able to understand the babble. Now that's what the LA Times wrote. I could see them writing something like that today. But that's what they wrote about this phenomenon that was taking place on Azusa Street. No one had ever seen anything like this. This was the first time something like this had ever exploded out on the scene during church, in, in all of church history. Nothing like this had ever happened. And so Orthodox Christians and media outlets and stuff were very concerned about what they were seeing. They didn't know what to think of it. Some of them couldn't find biblical precedents for it. Now today... Many hail Seymour as the pioneer of the modern Pentecostal movement and Azusa Street as the movement's birthplace. From Azusa Street, this movement, the modern Pentecostal movement, began to spread. Now, we're about a hundred and what, six, hundred and seven years later, 106, 107 years later, there are over 500 million Pentecostal and charismatic believers across the globe. Pentecostalism has become the fastest growing form of Christianity in the world today. And it all started on the 
1906, during 1906. It's interesting. Not a big history here going on with this stuff. No evidence of it happening before that or prior to that, but then. Now, it is worthy to note several things about this, several facts about this. Modern Pentecostalism is an offshoot of what is known as the holiness movement, which was largely based on Wesleyan teachings, the teachings of John Wesley. Uh, there's differences between them, but modern Pentecostalism kind of comes through that, those Wesleyan teachings. Now, Seymour, kind of the founder of this movement, promoted a doctrine that was in opposition to holy, holiness movement doctrine. The doctrine, which had been developed by Seymour's contemporary and peer, Charles Parham, stated that in order for a person to receive the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues, he or she must be baptized in the Spirit. Now, John Wesley and the holiness folks, obviously John Wesley was around a couple of centuries before that, but John Wesley and the holiness folks, however, held the orthodox view that all believers received the Spirit at conversion and that the gift of tongues was placed upon those whom God chose to place it upon. What they taught and believed was that you couldn't perform some sort of a ritual in order to receive the gift of tongues and begin to have this abundant life that Christ offers. They were, Wesley wasn't because he was gone, but his, his supporters and adherents to the holiness movement were completely opposed to Seymour's teachings and these doctrines. They did not believe that there was a scriptural basis for the baptism of the Spirit and the gift of tongues. They could find no scriptural support for such a doctrine. And so what happened was Seymour was booted out of his church in Texas. He was terminated. He was fired. He was removed from his pastorate. What did he do? He showed up on Azusa Street in Los Angeles and then got in cahoots with another guy down there and shared this doctrine and vision with him. And they kind of joined up, like I said, got, came into cahoots with one another and began to do this thing. And then that Azusa Street revival broke out. It's a little bit of a history lesson there on how Pentecostalism and how this tongues and these visions and these miracles became so commonplace. This is foundational stuff to that. Like I said, Seymour's new and controversial teachings got him removed from his pastor, but he relocated in an area that was unfamiliar with these things, and those things took root and seed down in L.A. It's interesting. Now, what's so mind-boggling about all of this is how popular this movement has become in light of the fact that many of its doctrines are based on bad interpretations, loose theology, and quite frankly, I don't mean to be offensive, but it's true, heretical teachings. Some of their belief and doctrine is based upon heresy. MacArthur said this at a conference a few years ago. He said, the Pentecostal movement as a movement defined by its unique characteristics is not biblical. That's a pretty harsh statement. That's a pretty heavy statement because now what you're saying is this Pentecostal movement, which has about 500 million adherents, belong to something that isn't biblical. And I don't think that all of them belong to it. There's some in there that see things differently, I would suspect and imagine. But it's interesting that someone like him would say such a thing. The question I asked myself then is, how can an unbiblical movement then be considered part of Christendom? 
Isn't being biblical a prerequisite, prerequisite for being Christian, for being a Christian organization, for being a church? Now, teaching that a special ritualistic baptism implants the Holy Spirit along with certain spiritual gifts in a person is blatant heresy. I mean, there's just no other way to, to paint it. It is heretical to teach such a doctrine. Even the Wesley folks 106 years ago agreed. They still do today. Many of the Methodists, which kind of carried on in some of that tradition, reject that notion. There are many people in the church that reject the idea that you can be baptized in the Spirit and receive tongues. It's incredible. Those holiness movement adherents, and I don't know if there's any around today, I think Pentecostalism kind of devoured that whole way of thinking, and they had some things goofy in that movement too. They were pretty much back then opposed to the doctrine of tongues and baptism, spiritual baptism. But millions upon millions, even hundreds of millions out there embrace this stuff. Many of them run the largest and fastest growing churches in our country and world. With very little to no historical support or evidence of those things. To contemplate the fact that they are based upon strange fire, strange doctrine, and yet so many adhere to it, isn't that alarming? Now that doesn't make me reject these folks that might be my brothers or anything. It makes me long for them to know the truth, that they could be wrong in their beliefs, that they need to know that they're following the ways of men and some poisonous doctrine, if these things are truly poisonous doctrines. I mean, I don't want to draw lines in the sand and say, well, here's my, I typically do this, here's my camp, you're not in it, so take a hike. No, I long for God's church, and I believe there are people out there that are part of that movement that truly belong to God's church. There's a lot of them, but we want everyone in the church to know the truth and to live out the truth and to live unified for the cause of Christ and for the cause of the gospel. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. There was a time in my life and my faith walk where I, I did see people like that as enemies and shame on me that's not the way I feel about them today we want people to know the truth and so historically speaking there isn't much support of those things bottom line it really began in 1906 with a couple of guys and now look at it second angle motives What, what motivates the widespread use of visions, tongues, and miracles in churches today? What motivates the, embrace, the embracing of these things and the constant use of these things and the employment of these things in churches and in church gatherings and meetings and special events and all of that? Well, I have five things that I've thought through. Five motives. Some of them are bad and one's good. Motive number one, pay attention. Okay, some of you guys are really locked in. I love that. This guy right here, he's like, he's about ready to charge the pulpit. I love it. I love that. Pay attention to what we're saying here. This is good stuff. We're going to grow through this. Five motives. Number one, the desire to generate experiences for our experience-seeking culture. The desire, what motivates the use of these things, the employment of them, 
the desire to generate experiences for our experience-seeking culture. We live in a culture that is addicted to experiences. People love experiences. People pray for experiences. And people chafe, chase after experiences with all their might. Now, what sorts of or kinds of experiences do people pursue just in a general way? They pursue, they go after adrenaline experiences. What else would cause a human being to jump out of an airplane with a bag on their back? And lately, a lot of people have been bouncing. Have you noticed that? I've been reading that in the news. Oh, man. People are adrenaline junkies. They're seeking out, they're looking for adrenaline-based experiences. Rock climbing stuff that I don't even like to take photos of. Jumping out of planes, riding motor, you know, motorcycle wheelies down Tully at 150 miles an hour. I used to see that all the time when I was a pastor over there. This guy, just, he'd fly by on one wheel at probably 110, 120. And I used to always call 911 when I saw him, just to get the ambulance rolling. You know? People seek after, they chase after, they pursue competitive experiences, don't they? We all just have that desire to, to win and to conquer. And so we get involved in all sorts of, sorts of sports. And, you know, I'm one of those guys that I'm going to play softball. And then I get out there and I don't stretch and I blow every hamstring and everything else I got, you know, and I'm laid up. Oh, man, we love competitive experiences. We love to gain those experiences. Remember that time we were playing out of rainbow fields and we smashed those kindergartners? They almost won. Competitive experiences we pursue. How about romantic experiences? Got to admit, not the most romantic guy in the world. My wife's right there. Might as well tell the truth. Nope. But people pursue those romantic experiences. Man, you should have seen it. We went to Napa. They had vineyards. They had wine. I passed out. No, no. People are looking for romantic experiences. People are pursuing sexual experiences. Some men think that in their minds that the, the greatest thing that they could ever do is conquer as many women as possible sexually. I guess some women think that way too. Sexual experiences. People pursue spiritual or divine experiences, don't they? People go after spiritual or divine experiences like you can't believe. Oh, I'm going to go to this thing and I'm going to go away to this retreat and I'm going to sit under an oak tree and God's going to meet with me through an acorn. Oh, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do Lectio and I'm going to hear God through all these people. And, and I want to go over here and I want to do this. I want to have an experience with God so bad. And I'm going to go here and I'm going to go to this event. And I'm going to go to this conference. Spiritual experiences. People are addicted to them in the church. They've become consumers in the church. Pursuing spiritual experiences. Some churches actually that's their the mission of their, some of their departments in their churches, and that's to generate spiritual, you know, experiences for those who attend. People are addicted to them. 
Now, one of the motives to embrace these things and put them out there and practice them is to generate experiences for our experience-seeking culture. Motive two, to create the appearance of God's supernatural presence and power in order to generate hype and attention for churches. Well, we can do these things, and, and, and let me tell you, man, it, it looks good, it sounds good, and stuff's happening, and there's movement, and wow, man, what a marketing tool for our church. Never forget the time this woman just cornered me. I didn't even really know her. She worked at a store that I was at shopping, and, and she comes to me and says, have you heard about what God is doing up there at this church in Reading? And I said, no, I haven't. What's he doing? He's speaking in tongues through people and people are getting visions in the service and, and people are being healed and there's miracles and, and all this stuff is going on and it's attracting people from all over the world, you know. And I said, kind of like a, a bright light and a bug. Yeah, they're just coming and whoa. I thought, okay, cool. I hadn't heard. Not the right kind of bug, I guess. But I think a lot of times the, these things are employed. They're put forth to generate, to create the appearance of God's supernatural presence and power. I'm not saying that God isn't functioning or working through those things. We'll gain more discernment on the subject as we study, but... A lot of it, there's a motive there that just says, man, if we put forth these things, it will generate hype, attention, and attendance. We got we to gotta make it look like something's happening here, guys, because just teaching the word and doing these things ain't working. We need more. Motive number three, why are these things embraced and employed? To supplement the means of grace. In Acts 2, 42 to 47. God has given us preaching. God has given us fellowship. The fellowship of believers, one another. God has given us the sacraments, communion and baptism. And God has given us prayer. Those are his means of grace towards us. It is in those things that we experience God's grace. It is in those things that we experience his goodness, his power, his love, his mercy, his joy. And sometimes I will say his healing. At least in a spiritual sense. Now why do leaders try to supplement his means of grace with these other things by embracing them and bringing them? Why? Because they do not believe that his means of grace are enough to satisfy the people of God and those who might be seeking after him. These things just don't work. This just doesn't work like it used to. If it ever did, we must do things to supplement, to bring them in. They do not believe that his means of grace are enough to satisfy the people of God. To quench the longings of the people of God and to meet the seeker right where he's at. 
number four, motive four, the pursuit of selfish gain. Men and women want money. They want the power. They want fame. They want notoriety. They want accolades. They want celebrity status. They want rock star, rock star reputations. And a lot of them want fine living. I'm talking about people in the church, friends. Money and power follow the visions, tongues, and miracles. And don't you think for a moment that people don't exalt those things for these other purposes, but for the very purpose of exalting one man who can wield this power and these visions and these gifts at will. Don't you think for a moment that it isn't for his own glory, because it is in churches, many of them. Not all of them, many of them. You become someone who can do those things or practices those things, you're going to get some attention. And you're going to be hailed. Whoo, that guy, man, let me tell you. We are not to believe that men and women are not in pursuit of their own glory. That is the battle that I live every day for me. In my flesh, I want to be received. I want to be exalted. I want to be loved. I want to be paid. I want to be honored and exalted. I am a God to myself in flesh. It's a daily battle. Motive five. To help people. To help people. I believe that there are those out there who engage these things and practice them because they have a true heart for people and they want to see people helped. And they believe that people can be helped through those things. I believe it. I can't. I'm not supposed to judge the character of any godly man. But I certainly can't believe in my heart that every single person that engages these things has a poisonous heart and wants to build up his bank account and do all of these things and bring attraction and accolades to his church. I, I, I can't believe that. I've met some of these men. They love Jesus. They want to help people. And they believe God can through those means. Five motives. Third angle Biblical analysis. This is where the rubber meets the road. Now, I've done some research on visions, tongues, and miracles from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm going to start by saying this. I am no expert on the subject. <laughs> Not an expert on anything but sin. I'm good at that. Let me just make that clear. And I don't love that about myself. I hate it. Let me just make that clear. I am not an expert. I am not the highest authority on this subject matter, but I can tell you I myself want to know what this says about these things so I can discern and I can lead people rightfully and biblically. So I have put in work. I have put in work. Okay? You should all put in work. Done research on these things. Now I want to frame some of these things or the things that we're going to kind of look at I want to frame them in their rightful context 
which will help to establish a biblical pattern which will provide us with a comparison tool. We will then be able to take the biblical patterns and compare them to what we see and hear today. Out in the world, out in the church. Now, the Bible has an actual name for this. It's called testing the spirits. My wife read the passage this morning, 1 John 4, 1, and I think it was what, 4 to 6 or 1 to 6 is what she read. And that's kind of that great passage that talks about don't believe everything you see and hear. We live in an era of false teachers and false prophets and false visionaries and false, 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 false. And so, test the spirits. What does test the spirits mean? It means what you see and hear compared to what this says. Clearly. We must test the spirits. If what we see and hear doesn't line up with what the Bible and its patterns, these are established patterns in the Word, if what we see and hear doesn't line up with those things then we will know that we are dealing with error. We will know that we are dealing with false witnesses, false teachers, or what have you. Ultimately, we're going to learn how to discern truth from fiction in regards to visions, tongues, and miracles over the course of several weeks. The questions that I will ask and answer, I like to ask these rhetoricals, I ask them and answer them, will be... And uh, for this morning, we're really going to focus on visions alone. We're going to come back over the next weeks and look at the other things. But this morning, we're going to be looking at visions. Now, the questions I'll ask and answer will be, who did God give visions to in the Old Testament? Who did he give the visions to in the Old Testament? Let's do an analysis of who received visions in the Old Testament. That's a pretty good thing to start with. Second thing I'll ask and answer, when did God give visions to the recipients? Was there a particular time that he did these things? During history or during the day or what have you? When did he give them, the recipients, these visions? And then three, what were the purposes of these visions according to the Old Testament scripture? Okay? Who did God give them to? When did God give them? And what were the purposes behind them? So we're going to do a little bit of it, and it's not going to take a long time to get through this material. It's good. We're going to do a little bit of a survey Old Testament style. First question, who did God give visions to in the Old Testament? Answer, ready? Answer, he gave visions to key biblical slash historical figures and prophets. Just to name a few, Abraham, Genesis 15.1, Joseph, Genesis 37.5, Pharaoh, Genesis 41.1-7, Jacob, Genesis 46-2-4, Balaam, Numbers 24, 16. Samuel, uh, actually that was first, yeah, he gave one to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, 10. Nathan the prophet, 2 Samuel 7, 4 to 17. Job, we've all heard of him, Job 7, 14. How about Isaiah? Isaiah 1, 1. Don't even try to keep up with this stuff, just listen. Isaiah 1, 1, 6, 1, and 21, 2. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 24, 1. Jeremiah 38, 21. Ezekiel, tons of passages. Daniel, even more passages. Hosea, Hosea 12.10. Amos 7.1. Obadiah, Obadiah 1.1. Nahum 1.1. Zechariah, a bunch of passages. Habakkuk 2.2. Blah, 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 blah. Who are we dealing with here? We are dealing with 
key biblical historical figures and prophets. That's what I've named to you. That's who I have identified. Not Joe that works over at Chevron. These are key core biblical historical figures as per the Old Testament. And these are just some examples. There's more. But look at those names. Abraham, Joseph, Pharaoh, Jacob, Daniel, Ezekiel. Man, these are the big dogs. Who did he give them to? Key figures, key prophets. Number two, when did God give visions to the recipients, to these recipients? A couple of answers for you. Many of the Old Testament visions were given in dreams at night while the recipients were asleep. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting fact. And it is a biblical pattern, in fact. Go back and look at the visions that these people received, and the majority of these visions were given in the middle of the night while they were, you know, counting sheep. <laughs> Whoa, what was that? A vision at night. I think that's interesting. God also, second answer, God also gave visions during critical moments in Israel's history. Okay? Abraham received a vision after he won a battle and gave Melchizedek an offering. Genesis 15.1. There was a vision that happened right there with Abraham. Young Joseph, the one who was betrayed by his family, received a vision of his family bowing before him. Genesis 37.7. This took place shortly before he was sold into slavery. Pharaoh received a vision revealing seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Genesis 41.1-7. Jacob received a vision just before he moved his family to Egypt where his son Joseph was second in command. We're talking about the beginnings of, of, of them being in bondage, in, the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt. These are major, major historical, biblical events where these visions came in. Nathan received visions of how the throne of King David would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 4 to 17. These are messianic, Jesus-centered visions. Man, the throne's going to be established forever by King Emmanuel, by the greatest king of all. In the future, this great king is going to come and he'll carry that throne off into eternity. Major event there. Isaiah received visions concerning Judah and Jerusalem's rampant idolatry when right after King Uzziah died, major turning point in Israel's history, a.k.a. key event. When Ezekiel and the people of Judah were held captive in Babylon, 70 years, big time stuff, Ezekiel received visions of Jerusalem's destruction and deportation. Part of the nation was already over there in captivity and the other part was going to come. Ezekiel 5, 1 to 17. All of these visions, most of them, okay, first of all, let's go back. Who got them? Major key biblical people, prophets, popular folks, key folks. When did God give them these visions? Most of them came at night, and they came during 
key events in Israel's history when God was about to move and do something really, really big. Okay, you see the pattern now? There's a pattern that's forming. Who and when? This is huge stuff, guys. It sounds real simple, but it's very important that we understand these patterns. Number three, what were the purposes for the visions? I did the research. These visions were given to affirm God's covenantal promises. These visions were given to give glimpses of God's glory, especially when you're talking about Isaiah's visions. Visions were given to affirm God's holiness. Visions were given to remind Israel of her holy and righteous calling. Visions were given to expose the sin and idolatry of Israel. Visions were given to reveal God's coming judgment. Visions were given to provide Israel with a picture of her glorious future when she repented and all of that stuff. Visions were given to give Israel hope. Visions were given to expose and refute false prophets and false visionaries. Visions were given to the true prophets of Israel in order to rebuke the ones who were giving false visions. It's incredible. Boiled down, what is the Old Testament pattern for visions? It's simple. Visions were given, as I reiterated, I'm going to reiterate again, to key biblical historical figures and Jewish prophets. Two visions were often given at night in dreams and at key moments in Israel's history. These are biblical facts. Three, visions were given to affirm divine purposes, reveal God's glory, remind Israel of God's holiness, remind Israel of her holiness, expose sin and idolatry, warn of coming judgment, give glimpses of the glorious future, give hope, and debunk, refute false prophets. I beg of you to go back and do the research and work yourself to prove these things true. These are the patterns of the Old Testament. There isn't any sway from them. This is how God functioned and worked and through the men that he worked through and how he did these things and gave these visions and they all had specific purposes. It's pretty amazing. And it's not rocket science. Now, if we were to use the Old Testament pattern, what we've seen, we looked at, and we could exhaust that subject matter much more, but if we were to use the Old Testament pattern by itself to test le the legitimacy of modern-day revelatory visions and the people who claim them, none of them would pass the test. Not one. If we were to base what we see and hear upon the information that we've heard, all of it would be false. All of it would be. Another thing to consider is this, and this is very profound, very important. Lock, stock, and barrel is what Hebrews 1.1 says. It says that Jesus is the last prophet, which means that he is the last one to issue prophetic revelatory vision, the book of Revelation. What the author of Hebrews says is that prophetic vision ended with Christ. That's a good reason to be a cessationist in terms of visions. He's the last prophet. More in line with revelatory. There is no new revelation. So let's say, how do we apply this? Let's say that a person today claims, okay, I know, based on Old Testament alone, we've got to do more than that, but let's just say this. Let's entertain this. Let's say that a person today claims to receive prophetic 
revelatory visions from God, or even prophetic visions, I'll say. Here's four questions to ask them. Are you a key figure or Jewish prophet? You look like Sven from Sweden. You don't look Jewish. Yeah, I want skiing. Are you a key person with the nation of Israel? Are you a Jewish prophet? Because those are the ones that received the vision. It's an interesting thing to ask. Don't probably suspect that it would go down very well if you asked that. Number two, this would go down even worse. Are you Jesus? You must be. Because Hebrews 1.1 says that Jesus is the final prophet to give revelatory vision. You must be him returned. I don't know if I'd say these things to somebody. Let's just entertain the idea. It might come off really mean. But it's good to ask in your mind. Really? Are you Jesus? Are you a key Jewish figure, prophet? How about this one? When did you receive the vision? Again, these are based on Old Testament alone. When did you receive the vision? According to the Old Testament, visions were given at night in dreams or during Israel's key moments. During key moments. Did you receive your vision at night? Because the Old Testament shows that that's when they happened. Or at key turning points in Israel's history. I know what you're thinking in your mind. Come on now, we've got New Testament. Things are different. We'll see. When did you receive that vision? Or how about this one? And this is the one that I like. This is the one that I would probably ask more than anything else because the other ones seem to be a little bit humiliating. What is the purpose of your vision? According to the Old Testament, visions were given to affirm divine promises, reveal God's glory, remind Israel of God's holiness, remind Israel of her holiness, expose sin and idolatry, these things that I talked about, warn of coming judgment, give glimpses of the glorious future, give hope, and debunk false prophets. Uh, it's funny to me, but your vision doesn't seem to address any of those things. But that's, those are the purposes for which God gave visions. You just told me you, something else. I don't want any of you to think for a moment that I'm trying to box God up. I'm not trying to put God in a box. I'm not trying to limit God. God is God, and He does what He wants whenever He wants. The things that I've presented to you are the Old Testament patterns only. God formed them, not me. Now, in order to develop the most accurate view of these things, we must study and evaluate all Scripture. And I know for some of you, what was clinking around in your mind as I was making this argument against visions via the Old Testament, you're thinking, what about the day of Pentecost where God blew things wide open? Well, guess what? You're going to be surprised when we study the New Testament to find out that it's not as open as you think. That it's very similar to what we've just read. Extraordinarily similar. Right on. Very interesting. But we must evaluate, we must study all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, in order to develop a good, rock-solid biblical theology on these things. God has given us additional patterns in other areas. In the coming weeks, we will look at visions and tongues in the New Testament and miracles in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we'll kind of come at those things from the same angles. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a little bit of an application. It's like, where do you tie this thing off? 
where do you end this at, right? Just in this flux of, I'm not sure where we're going. No. Let me end with this question. I've got to build a little foundation before I get to the question. God has given himself to us in and through his son. It's called the incarnation. He has given himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have God. That's a miracle. God has given himself to us in and through his son. God speaks to us through his word. God puts his arms around us through the fellowship of believers. He does. Through the body of Christ, God gives hugs. Through the body of Christ, God gives encouragement. God extends mercy. God extends grace. God gives us his love through the body of Christ. God reminds us of his redemptive work and his mighty promises, his covenantal love through the sacraments. God listens to us and answers us through prayer. Here is the question. Are we satisfied with the ways that he has chosen to communicate and commune with us? Or are we restless and unsatisfied? Are we discontent? Are his means of grace enough for us? They certainly should be. If you're experiencing restlessness, dissatisfaction, discontent, maybe you are unaware of what the Bible says about the Word of God in Psalm 19, 7-10. It says about this, about the Word alone, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David's testimony about the word of God here is the most concise, comprehensive statement in all of Scripture about the sufficiency of Scripture. What am I saying? The Scriptures alone give us what we need to know about God and to experience Him. Through them we come to know Jesus, and through them we come to know the church, and through them we are introduced to communion and communing with God, and through them we come to know how to pray and commune with God. Be very, very careful with where you seek to find God and hear from Him. To go beyond His means of grace is to potentially subject yourself to strange fire and strange spirits. Amen. Do you hear me? 
If you want to know God more, to have an experience with Him, to grow to know and love Him, get into His Word, hang out with His people, celebrate the sacraments, and seek Him through prayer, I promise you, you will find Him through those means. Why? Because the Bible says so. Amen.